Hey, have you guys had a good day today? I like it. I like it. We're kind of talking about marriage last night and, and dating this morning. So I'll kind of share with you my experience, which wasn't, I, I didn't really know what I was doing. So Katie and I, we met when I was here. I'd hired her to be part of the band at Hume Lake. Uh, this was maybe four summers ago. And I remember telling her at the end of the summer, hey, I'd love to get to know you. She lived in Long Beach. I lived up here. It's about a five-hour drive. And after dating for a little bit, I just like to call spade a spade. I said, you're my girlfriend. I didn't know that you're supposed to ask the girl to be your girlfriend. And so like, I think it was like at the end of the date after I already told her what it is, I said, you never responded. And she's like, you didn't ask me any questions. I was like, I said, you're my girlfriend. And she's like, what did you want me to say? Yes. Uh, so I, I, I didn't really know how to go. It was like, we dated for seven months. I was in Nepal with Harry, and I was there when I was like, I need to marry this girl. And I got home, I think I was staying at her parents' house, and uh, I knew at that point that I had to get married at a specific date in the, in the fall because I was leaving to go overseas for a couple months, and I was like, I gotta take her with me. Or if I don't get married in August, I'll have to wait till December. I'm like, that stinks. So I remember thinking, I met her dad. Her dad leaves for work super early in the morning at like 4.30. He comes downstairs and I'm just sitting on the kitchen counter at 4.30. Sup, Mike. Um, and I don't really beat around the bush. I don't know how to do it. It's not a gift I possess. And I was like, so, can I marry Katie? And uh, I had never really talked to him about it. We've been dating at this point for seven months. And he's like, yeah, uh, sure. You know, and. Uh, I was like, okay, that's it? Okay, and he's like, when do you wanna do it? And I was like, I have to do it today. Uh, I had, I think while I was in Nepal, called a guy in New York, sent a ring, I picked it up that day. I had hurt my shoulder, I didn't know where to put my ring, so I had taped it on the inside of my sling because we went out on a Duffy boat that night and I was worried I would lose it. And um, I, uh, yeah, we got engaged after seven months and. You don't have to know what you're doing. Sorry, the point. That's hidden somewhere in a back kick. So anyways, um, dating stinks. Get married. Okay. Uh, all right. So there's, I think we've covered a fair amount of real estate. What I want to do tonight is, is twofold because I think we've already covered to a certain degree the consequences of impurity. And I want to be able to address this for just a moment because this morning I spoke about the great promises that God extends to those who are pure in heart. But it would be negligence on my own part to not, to give you a brief survey of the profound warnings that God has against those who reject his word. It's going to say many times, even Proverbs, that same author that is writing Song of Solomon in Proverbs 5, he's going to write a number of different Proverbs that detail the profound consequences of living a life of sin. Now you and I, we live in a world where people constant, constantly dip their toes in the pool of lust all day long. There are apps that are acceptable on your phone that serve as the gateway drugs to your own addiction. People say, I, I want to change, I don't want to look at pornography, and I just am always confused when they still have rapid and constant exposure to social media. It's confusing to me because the Bible says make no provision for the flesh. And yet we live a life where people constantly compare beauty. I'm not saying that social media is bad. I have social media. But the Bible doesn't mince words when it talks about the plight of those who continue to satisfy their sexual appetites. Impurity in the Bible is not a niche subject. It's not on the periphery of scripture. The Bible doesn't whisper about sexual sin. It makes it a constant theme and a constant anthem throughout the Bible. In fact, one of the continual examples of someone who has been changed by God over and over again in the scripture. In the New Testament, there are eight vice lists which describe the behavior and life of a new convert. In seven out of the eight vice lists, the first thing out of the, out of the gate is always what the person does with their sexual sin. In Acts 15, Paul is writing the church and there's a new church, recent converts, and they're trying to boil down all that it means to follow Christ. And he's saying, don't get caught up on everything, just give them this basic prescription. 
Don't serve idols and be sexually pure. That's it. And the Bible does this over and over again. Maybe you've heard someone say that impurity or sexual sin is sin, but so is envy or greed or jealousy. Yeah, all sin separates us from God. But biblically speaking, sexual sin is unlike every other sin. Take the words of scripture, 1 Corinthians 6. Flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside of his body. But the immoral man sins against his own body. Do you not know you are a temple of the Holy Spirit? All sin separates us from God, but biblically speaking, not all sin is the same. And that's why 1 Corinthians 6 is going to say, let me just read it for you. Turn there real quick, because I want you to see this in the, in the word of God and not the word of man. 1 Corinthians 6, there are profound consequences to rejecting the biblical prescription for purity. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Pause. That's a biblical reality. But there's a great truth coming in verse 11. Such were some of you. 1 Corinthians 6, 11. But you are washed, you are sanctified, you are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the spirit of our God. Jesus Christ is in the business of saving sexual sinners. But people who continue to live their life in unrepentant sexual sin don't know God. And the Bible couldn't be any more clear about it. But why is it such a big deal? Well, verse 13, food is for the stomach and the stomach is for food, but God will do away with both of them. Yet the body is not for immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord is for the body. Now, verse 15, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Think with me, here's what it's saying. The reason sexual sin is so serious is that if you're a Christian, God doesn't just live in you. You're united to him. Does that make sense? It's called our union with Christ. It's one of the richest doctrines in the Bible. And if you miss this, you miss part of the key argument for why sexual sin is so serious. It says, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? You and Christ are one person. That's why you're called the temple of the Holy Spirit. He lives inside of you, and yet you're united to him. It says, shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. It's the strongest verb in the New Testament, megenata, impossible. Don't even think about it. Do you not know, verse 16, that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For he says the two shall become one flesh. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee immorality, every other sin that a man commits is outside the body. But the immoral man sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? If you're a Christian, you live in a world where it's that people say, my body, my choice. If you're a Christian, Jesus says, my body, my body. And so, verse 20, you have been bought with a the price, therefore glorify God in your body. The question is asked, and I want you to understand this. Can you imagine Jesus Christ shacking up with a prostitute? What's the answer? No. Same question is asked. Can you imagine Jesus Christ in front of a pornographic screen? No. And then Paul's going to say, may it never be. So when you sin, it's not sinning against the principle. If you're a Christian, you're dragging Jesus Christ into the sin he died for because you have been united with him. And this is why the Bible is going to say sexual sin is unlike every other sin. The strongest metaphor in the Bible is that of marriage. That's why marriage matters to God. It's not just that he wants one man and one woman together. It's because the metaphor throughout all of the scripture is that Jesus is doing something with his church. The Bible begins with the marriage, and you know what happens at the end? There's a marriage feast. The Bible is anchored by the metaphor of a marriage. Jesus is building his church, and the church is the bride of who? Of Christ. No other metaphor matters more biblically than this. And this is why it's not just like another sin, where yes, all sin separates, all sin grieves God, but this is different. It's the first rung of the ladder in the Christian life. If you miss this, you miss the Christian life.
because Jesus is going to say, if your eye causes you to stumble, tear it out, for it is better for you to enter heaven with one eye than for your entire body to be thrown into where? Hell. And, and so you know what that means from Jesus' perspective? Eternity is at stake. When we talk about sexual purity, not that you earn your salvation, we're to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Luke 3 which means that one of the ways we know that God has genuinely transformed our heart is how we approach the subject. And so the Bible is full of rich promises and it's full of profound warnings. What are the warnings? Well, Proverbs 5, if you spurn this, Proverbs 5, you will groan when your flesh and body are consumed and say how I have hated instruction, how my heart spurned reproof, how I have not listened to the voice of my teachers nor inclined my ear to my instructors. That's maybe what you've known. If you've grown up in the church, have you heard more about the warnings of sin than the promises of sin, or promises of righteousness? Yeah? Okay. So here's what I wanna talk about this evening. I think largely what has happened is that people have grown up in the church thinking that sexual sin is serious because they've heard the consequences and the warnings. But what starts to happen is they start to dabble and drift away from it. And then they do so before they know they have a problem, but they rarely communicate that problem transparently because that would mean they would have to obliterate one of the most prominent idols in their life, their own reputation. So on a quest of reputation preservation, people keep fighting and disciplining themselves to no longer sin so that the sting of their guilty conscience will drive them at that point to take radical measures for a while. They'll cut off sin for a while. They'll get accountability for a while. They'll make promises to God and keep them for a while. And then they will get comfortable thinking that the sin is behind them, not knowing that Satan is a master strategist who lets you think that sin is behind you while all he is doing is suppressing that sin in your life so that when you are comfortable and your weapons are away, you will be destroyed. Sin strikes again. And then we go over the same cycle and the same cycle and the same cycle over and over again, guilt the sting of conscience, promises to God, radical measures for a while, self-will, discipline, try to remove ourselves from our sin so then we can confess it later on as a retroactive struggle. It's way easier to say, hey, six months ago I struggled with pornography, but I'm good now. Am I right? Hear a sermon, go to camp, get convicted, get motivated, get comfortable. Cycle, on and on for months and years. When I was growing up, my dad, I don't know if you, have you guys ever, you've seen Home Alone, I'm assuming, you're Christians? Okay, so <laughs> in the movie Home Alone, I never could really enjoy it as a kid because even at nine years old, I was watching Kevin fight off the wet bandits, and I would know, what are they doing? They're stupid. Like, that would never work with real bad guys. They'd be smarter than this, and I was always frustrated. But my dad is a guy that actually employed the methods of Kevin at our house in Chicago, meaning that, like, when we moved to Chicago, I grew up there when I was a kid. My dad was like, yeah, maybe it's a dangerous area. So, like, I would go to bed and wake up, and my dad would be lining the windows of the house with Legos. Like legitimately a bad guy's gonna break into our house, step on some sort of like castle Lego and be like, ah! you know, like that was my dad's defense system. It's obviously laughable to us and because it's insufficient. It would never actually change anything should a guy break into our home. And in many ways, only hearing about the consequences of sin serves as an insufficient defense to your constant temptation to be engaged in it. It's never gonna work if that's all you hear. Similarly, many people today know sin is bad, but knowing sin is bad is never going to be enough. 
to transform your affections. It's not enough to change your desires. Warnings alone will never lead you to heart transformation. So saying no to temptation is assuredly a large component of the Christian life. Say no, run, flee. I was asking a friend the other day, how do we learn how to fight temptation? And he goes, well, you're already thinking about it the wrong way. The Bible doesn't tell you to fight temptation. It tells you to run from temptation, flee it. And then when you're confronted in the battle, wage war. It's always serious language. But God's spirit and God's plan for your life is not merely to enable you to resist your desires. The biblical prescription for those of you that struggle with sexual sin is that God through his spirit, through his word would transform your desires. Let me ask you, friend, do you long to be transformed from the inside out? Do you long to be free from duty-driven Christianity? Do you long to want to do what you ought to do? Maybe you've heard and we sing songs and sometimes I just get frustrated because songs are sung and 15 year olds and older people have no idea what they're singing. Where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And sometimes you gotta think, what the heck does that mean when all I see in the Bible is the prescription for how I'm to live? Saying no to temptation and here's the way that you're supposed to conduct yourself doesn't feel super free to me, right? So how can the Christian life feel like freedom? How can I want to do what God has commanded me to do? How can I eagerly pursue all that God has lined out for me in the scripture? Where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom, but it feels so restricting to me. Well, the answer is if you want that kind of freedom, you need to pursue with all of your might the renewing of your mind. I wanna take you to a familiar passage. Turn to Romans 12. And Mikey mentioned this this morning. One of the more familiar passages in the New Testament, and definitely that in Romans, Romans 12, 1 and 2. Let me read it for you. It says, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is. Pause. The will of God doesn't need to be found. It needs to be obeyed and it needs to be proven. That which is good and acceptable and perfect. Paul has established that we are to live our entire lives in verse one. Uh, in, to presenting it as a living and holy sacrifice. In the Old Testament, people offered sacrifices to show that they belong to God. In the New Testament, after what God has done for us in Christ, he's saying, I, I exhort you, brethren, everything that is inside of you, all of your time, your gifts, your money, your future, it is to be presented on the altar to Jesus Christ. You're to live completely for him. Galatians 2.20 says, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and who gave himself for me. Paul's saying, Jesus Christ died for me. Now the only logical response is to live entirely for him. And he's gonna say, how do we do that practically? Because the Bible is not ethereal. It's not like, we don't have to pontificate and go, what does this even mean? He's going to tell us. You live in a world where people memorize verses and so much of it is missing from the context. The Bible's going to tell us because it's a story. How do we do that? How do we live our lives as a living sacrifice? Verse two, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of the mind. He's saying, don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. Most of us are awake 16 hours a day. And the majority of those hours come under the direct influence of the world. The Bible is telling you, you are moldable. There are things you shouldn't do, places you shouldn't go, shows you shouldn't watch, things you shouldn't listen to, apps you shouldn't have. You know why? Because you are moldable. I like what one author says. He says, the world is a seducer. 
It seeks to attract our attention and our devotion. It remains close at hand, visible and enticing. It eclipses our view of heaven. What is seen vies for our attention. It entices our eyes, prevents us from watching for a better country whose builder and maker is God. The world pleases us, much of the time anyway, and alas, we often live our lives to please it. That is where conflict ensues, for pleasing the world seldom overlaps with pleasing God. The divine call is this, do not be conformed to this world, but the world wants to be partners with you. One of the ways that even modern day pastors are judged and graded is by how much the world likes them. How comfortable an unbeliever feels when they go to church there. If an unbeliever can go to a church for a period of time and not feel uncomfortable, it's not a church you should go to. The way to be different from the world is not by modifying our behavior, but by something else entirely. What is it? It is to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. And I want you to think with me because what this means is profound and precious to me. Because if you've grown up in the church or maybe you're new to Christianity, what you've heard is how you're supposed to live. But renewing our mind doesn't mean going from the to-do list of the flesh, meaning the things that your heart naturally wants to do, to the to-do list of the Christian faith, meaning now I have to obey these set of principles. Renewing your mind is different. It's about being transformed. The only word elsewhere we see this word transformed is in the transfiguration of Jesus where he becomes something else. And then Moses and Elijah appear next to him. Transformation of the mind is essential. Do you know why? Because 99% of your life is lived spontaneously. You're not gonna be confronted often and go, wait a second, let me consult my list. No, beep. You know, that's not how you live your life. You live your life oftentimes with knee-jerk reactions, meaning that you see something that maybe causes you or is a segue to greater sin, and you spontaneously respond if you have a renewed mind to go, no, that doesn't please God. Let me run to God. That's how you live your life. You don't live your life consulting lists of the flesh and then lists of the Christian faith. You live your life out of the mind. And so that's why the Bible says you're transformed when your mind is gradually and progressively renewed. It's no surprise here that Paul, after urging us to present our entire bodies as a living sacrifice, goes instantly and logically to the matter of the mind. Because unless there is something wrong, the mind is the control center of our body. Our minds determine our feelings, our affections, and with our minds, we make decisions. And so Paul says that our minds are crucial in giving our entire life to God. I have a question for you. Do you want to live a life that honors God? Talk to me. Well, it's only when your mind is under the constant jurisdiction of the Spirit of God that you can have the hope to live a life that honors him. What's wrong with the human mind? Why does it need renewing? Most people think that education is redemption, meaning that if we only educated people, the world would be less sinful. But we know from history that the most educated sinners do the most damage. Sex education didn't change anything. It only made it significantly worse. The problem with your mind is not a problem of information, it's a problem of sin, and it's that the natural mind has a bent against God, and even for Christians, your mind needs to be removed because there is still a strong pull towards the things of the world as long as we are in the world. Much could be said about the anti-intellectualism of the way that many people approach the Christian faith, but God's word tells you, friends, that the Christian life begins in the mind. In, in this snippet world of Christianity where people post little creative stories uh, to try to engage people, and, and sometimes, I mean, to be honest, have you ever been to a church where you just leave and go, what was actually just said, right? It's because people think that what you need is to be engaged. And there's truth in that because truth is compelling and should be the most engaging reality in a world of lies. But the Bible is going to say, listen, listen, 
If you want to understand Christianity, Christianity 101 begins in the mind. It's not a check your brain at the door faith. It's a thinking faith. That's why John Stott says the battle for the Christian life is the battle for the Christian mind. But this is not just the opinion of an English theologian. It's the anthem of scripture. As your mind goes, so goes the rest of your Christian life. How can I actually want to honor God? I know what I should do to honor God, but how can that be my pursuit? Well, your mind dictates your will, and your will is the servant of your affections, and what controls your affections is the mind. The sum and substance of your Christian life is what you fill your mind with. And Kasi said it this morning, that's, that's not all there is, and we'll get there. We need the spirit of God. Proverbs 23, seven, as a man thinks within himself, so he is. Filthy thoughts produce a filthy life. You are what you think. Godly thoughts lead to a godly life. Be careful what you let behind the steering wheel of your mind because it dictates your entire life. 1 Peter 1.13, prepare your minds for action. You are not ready for anything in the Christian life until you prepare your mind. Ephesians 4.22, it says that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self which is in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness and truth. The mind, the mind, the mind, the mind. Mark 12, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, what? Mind and strength. This is critical. And sometimes if you've been in the church, you can miss what's right in front of you. You cannot possibly have a Hail Mary's chance at honoring God if you do not present your minds to God. And you do not go, God, I don't just want to resist the affections and desires in my mind. I want you to transform my mind. It means metamorphosis is the word in the Greek, which means a total change. Even what we looked at this morning, the way that the Bible speaks of an unbeliever is someone whose mind is controlled by Satan. 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel. Meaning your mind dictates everything. Maybe you've grown up in a, set, in a setting that said, you know, it's in my mind, but it's not in my heart. I understand what people are saying, but what does that even, what does it even mean biblically? Because if you miss the mind, you miss everything. You can't have something in the heart if it is not first in the mind. You, you will not want to honor God unless you flood your minds with truth. How is my mind renewed then is the question. If Jesus says, oh, be transformed by the renewing of your mind, love me with all of your mind, that's the greatest commandment, which means that if you don't love God with all of your mind, you're disobeying the greatest commandment. And consequently, you're also leaving the weapon that God has given you to fight sin and to transform your affections so you love to do what God has commanded you to do. Make sense? How is my mind renewed? Well, there's only one other word in the New Testament and in all of the Bible where we see the same word for renewed. And so sometimes that's a helpful cue for us. It's in Titus 3, 5. And let me read it for you. Titus 3, 5. It says, he saved us, that's God, not on the basis of deeds which he has done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. Renewing by the Holy Spirit. How are our minds renewed? It is by the active submission to the Spirit of God. Now the question is, how does the Holy Spirit work then? We sing songs that only perpetuate the ambiguity regarding the Spirit of God. You're welcome here. What, what does that mean? Well, obviously, I can, I can play devil's advocate. It means inviting the Spirit to do His work in our lives, right? On the one hand, I could defend that. But we, we need to understand how the Spirit of God works because it's the only way your mind is going to be transformed. Well, how does the Spirit of God work? Well, we can say a number of things, but I think chiefly, the main way that the Spirit of God works is through the Word of God. That's why, you know what Paul's command is and Jesus' command is over and over in the New Testament? When they leave, do you want to know how, what spirit-driven churches are? You want to know how full of the spirit of God the early church was? Things were happening. Miracles were being performed. 
But it never says to people, oh, that you, uh, my last commandment to you is to just be full of the spirit. The last command that Paul always gives to the churches that he has planted is what? Preach the what? The word. Preach the word. It's because the word of God is living and active. And so the spirit of God takes the word of God and makes sense of it in our lives and illuminates the meaning of scripture, which means that God through his spirit causes the scripture to become enlightened to us and he conforms us into the image of God. The spirit of God takes the word of God and conforms you into the image of the son of God. And that's how our minds are renewed. The spirit of God does not work subjectively. You live in a world dictated by feelings. But the Spirit of God does something objectively. As we look to an objective truth, he then makes sense of it in the lives of believing as we pray with the psalmist, open my eyes, O God, that I may behold the wonderful things within your word. And we begin to see God for who he really is. 2 Corinthians 3.18 is probably the most important important verse I can think of when it comes to the renewing of your mind. It comes right after that verse on freedom. It says, where the spirit of the Lord is, 2 Corinthians 3, 17, there is freedom, okay? Now, how, how can the Christian life feel like freedom? 2 Corinthians 3, 18, it says, what we all with unveiled face are beholding the glory of the Lord, and as we do so, he transforms us into the image of the one we behold, what that means is this, the Christian life is only going to feel like freedom, meaning that you, we, you will only begin to hate pornography when your mind is actually transformed. There is a worldly remorse where you hate the consequences of sin, but the only person that can actually love righteousness is someone who understands this. You become like the one you behold. And as we behold God in the word of God, the spirit of God conforms us into the image of the one we behold. It might sound so simple, and yet it's one of the most neglected realities amongst professing Christians today. It might sound overly simplistic to say, do you want your minds to be transformed? then you need to desperately pray that the Spirit of God would take the Word of God and conform you into the image of God as you surround yourself with the people of God. The Bible is not rocket science. Question, how can a young man keep his way pure? Answer, by keeping it according to your what? Word. It's not just that David the psalmist is going to be reminded of the warnings against impurity. It's that he's later on going to confess in Psalm 119, this is the best. Oh God, I wait for midnight so I can wake up and actually spend some undistracted time with you. I love your law. I love you, Lord. Oh my goodness. We just read it in Psalm 34. Come magnify the Lord with me. Oh, taste and see that he's good. The reason the psalmist says that the word of God keeps him from impurity is not just that he's reminded of the consequences, even though there are many and they are true. It's that the word of God transforms what he loves. And so he can say, oh my goodness, taste and see. Have you ever tasted and seen the goodness of God? Has it ever become experientially real? And I said this this morning, but it's so important. God is in the business of transforming what you love. And until you love your sin more, or as long as you love your sin more than God, you will always desire your sin more than God because you desire what you love and you serve whom you love. And so God wants to transform your affections from the inside out. Freedom is doing what you love to do. The freest of all the people in the universe are those who do exactly what they love to do and don't suffer for it in hell. And it says so that we might prove what the will of God is. Well, what happens then? It's when we realize that God's will is best. When you submit your life to scripture, when mercy grabs you and when grace controls you, you'll be actually able to say, God's design is the best design. His ways are the best ways. His path is the most pleasurable satisfying and enjoyable. 
This is convicting because many of you spend, and many, and oftentimes I do, so I can, I'm with you, we spend more time scrolling through our phones than we do searching the scriptures. And yet we look for new books, new devos, new sermons. And yet it's so crystal clear to be conformed to the world, all you have to do is immerse yourself in it. Allow yourself to be influenced by it. It takes no effort and brings great consequences. To be transformed by the renewing of your mind, you need to immerse yourself in the word of God. It is much effort and brings much rewards. There are no sabbaticals or vacations from dwelling on the things of God. I just want to promise you, your mind will never drift towards greater affection for Jesus Christ. It'll always be drifting towards sin, and that's why we sing prone to wonder. Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Because your natural inclination in your heart, outside of the Spirit of God, employing the Word of God, is to pursue sin. And that's why John Owen says, be killing sin or it'll be killing you. Sin will keep you from this book or this book will keep you from sin. And maybe I can just ask you, when you think about the seasons of your life where you've pursued God the most and felt the nearness of his intimacy, has it not been the seasons that you've been most devoted to his word? And it's not just in the habit or the checking of the box, as Kasi said this morning. It's in longing to be near to God as he speaks to you through his word. I can ask you even now, do you really pray? Well, how do I know how to pray? Maybe we pray in a ritual or tradition way before a meal. But do you know how to pray biblically? How you pray biblically is by taking the scripture and reciting it to God. Paul says, I pray that your minds would be enlightened so that you would know the things that are in this book. And then you go, God, help me to understand these things. God, I thank you for what is being revealed to me in your word. You have no idea how to pray unless you're devoted to his word. You can't say, God, I thank you because so much of prayer is to be exalting of God. And yet if you starve yourself of the word of God, your prayers will always be famished because you need to constantly replenish your own bank of praise. To go, God, I'm reading this to be true. Thank you. It says in 1 Thessalonians that we're not to be sexually impure, but rather give thanks. Don't you find that interesting that one of the key weapons that Paul's going to give you to, to those of you that are struggling sexually, whether that be pornographic or in a relationship or whatever it might be, do not be sexually immoral, but rather give thanks. Because thanksgiving is even a weapon, meaning if I can't thank God for the image or I can't thank God for the sin I'm about to participate in, it's not something that I will conduct myself in. Because I'm so used to reciting and praising and thanking God for what I'm receiving in his word. It's not just that I'm reminded of the promises to me if I'm pure. It's not just that I'm reminded of the warnings. It's that my heart is full of gratitude. And because I'm so used to giving gratitude to God, there is something that goes off in my mind when I'm about to participate in something that not only I can't praise God for, but something that grieves him. And this is what it means for your minds to be renewed. And not only as we renew our minds in scripture are we reminded of God's promises or God's warnings, we're also reminded of our identity in Christ. Now this is a buzzword and maybe it maybe has no meaning to you, but it has a lot of meaning to the people that write the New Testament and to God himself. Because one of the chief tactics that the Bible is going to use for you if you struggle with sin, it's for you to have a confident understanding of who you are in Christ. I used to work at Rattler's Barbecue when I was 16 through 22. I was always working at the restaurant. Now, hypothetically, I'm a married dude. I got a baby. I haven't worked there in nearly 10 years. Rattler's Barbecue calls me up and they go, Johnny, I need you to come into the restaurant and fill up the barbecue sauces and roll some silverware and wrap up the carrot cake. What am I gonna do? No chance, dude. I haven't worked there in 10 years. I'm married and I'm hanging out with Lily, right? It's not happening. 
because I go, I don't work there anymore. That's my old life, right? The Bible is the same way for those of you who are in Christ. When sin is tempting you, Romans 6 says, how can you possibly, if you've died to sin, continue to live in it? You go, what is this? I literally don't live that way any longer. That sin died with Jesus Christ. That's my old life. I don't do that anymore. That's my old boss, but I serve a new master, and he's not only my master, he's my father. And as you survey the scripture and your minds are renewed, you begin to be comfortable and confident in your identity as a Christ follower, which means that you never have to look at pornography again because if you're a Christian, you serve a new master and that master has no lordship over you. I never have to work another day at Rattler's Barbecue. I don't work there anymore. If you're a Christian, you don't ever have to serve your sin again. You don't work there anymore. You know who you serve? Jesus Christ, who loved you and who gave himself for you. And only as your mind is renewed in scripture do you remind yourself that you go, whatever happens today, I'm a child of God. I don't have to wake up in the morning and go, I don't work at Rattlers anymore. Because that's become so normal to my identity. But yet for many people, they still serve this old master in ways and, and it's hard for them even to know if they're a Christian. Because then you're, the question becomes, and this is prominent, how can I live confidently out of my identity in Christ if I don't know for sure that I have assurance of my identity in Christ, right? How can I live this way and say, no, I'm dead to sin if I don't know if I'm dead to sin? And so then what happens is they try to prove themselves before God so that their obedience shows God that they're, they're good enough to be his child. And no one ever changes because in the moment of temptation, they don't know for sure if they're a child of God. So they go, man, this might just be evidence that I'm not. And I think this is the way so many people live. But do you know who longs for you to have assurance of your standing before God? longs, desires, and commands. Jesus himself. Jesus is not playing a game with his children going, we'll see where you're at when you meet me face to face, Bill. <laughs> Do you know what he's doing? Second Peter 1, make your calling and election sure. Because Jesus knows the Christian life can only be lived out of a confidence in our identity meaning you can't live like you're dead to sin if you don't know you're dead to sin. I would be negligent to not get here, so bear with me. Who can have a renewed mind? Only the people that have a renewed heart. In verse one, Paul says, therefore, and whenever you see that in the Bible, you ask the question, what's the therefore? Therefore, because Paul is drawing us to a conclusion. It's the most important Bible word there is in the New Testament. Potentially, the three most important words are but, therefore, or unless, because it signifies something very important is coming or has been concluded. Therefore, I beseech you by the mercies of God. Paul's saying, I beseech you by everything I've just covered in the 11 chapters I've presented. What is he covered in the 11 chapters? Well, Romans 1, every single person is under the wrath of God. The wrath of God is revealed against every single person who's unrighteous. God isn't mildly displeased with people who sin. He hates sin and he punishes sin and his wrath is coming towards those who live unrepentantly in it. Romans 2, it's not just for the people out there. It's for people in the church who think that they can earn their way to God. And so he's gonna say, Romans 2, 4, don't you understand that it is the kindness of the Lord that leads you to repentance? Not that you can earn your way to him. Romans 3, there is no one holy, not even one. There's none of you that can even earn a single ounce of favor before a holy God. No one. I've said it with students often. There's a common mindset amongst every single person in heaven. Not one person there thinks they deserve to be there. And so Romans 3.23 says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, 
But before that, I love verse 19 and 20 because it's so important. It's not just the theological ascent to go, yeah, I'm not perfect. Everybody's human. I'm only human. Sure, I have my flaws. Romans 3.20, every mouth must be stopped before a holy God. I like what one pastor says. The most common definition of a Christian is someone whose mouth has been shut. Meaning that you understand God's holiness and you understand your sin to such a degree where you, like the publican that we talked about this morning, go, God be merciful to me, a sinner. I have nothing in my hands to bring. In Romans 4, how can those people be brought near to God? It's not through any achievement. It's not through any merit. It's not through any service or piety or devotion. It's through justification by faith. And then Romans 5 is going to say that now the love of God has been not only displayed for us throughout the Old Testament, it's not only a, a, a decreed reality, it's a demonstrated reality, Romans 5 eight, because the love of God is demonstrated as Jesus hangs naked on a tree he created for the people he came to save and that he had made it in his own image. Because everyone like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has gone to our own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Because ever since Adam sinned, all sin entered the human race and there is no one that can earn their way to God. And the love of God in Romans 5 through the Holy Spirit has been poured out into the hearts of those who believe. And so they go, this is wonderful. It's not just a love that I go, yeah, I believe in it. It's a love that they've received and they go, this is real. This is real. And then in Romans 6, he's going to say, what shall we say? If God is, what I've got, if you've died to Christ, who do you live for? You don't serve the master of sin. You no longer work at Rattler's Barbecue. Shall I continue to present my members as slaves of unrighteousness? No, I'm a slave to Jesus Christ because he's my master. And it's not hard work in the sense where I hate it. It's the work I love because his burden is easy because he carries me the entire way. Romans 7, I'm gonna go through seasons of sin. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God who will redeem me. Romans 8, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because he deeply loves me. What shall we say against these things of God is for us? Who can be against us? He who did not spare his only son, but delivered him up for us all. Will he not freely give us everything in Christ? What can separate me from the love of God? Nothing. Height, depth, angels, nor principality, nor things present, nor things to come. Ukraine, Russia, nuclear warfare. What can separate me? Nothing. But in all these things, we're overwhelmingly conquerors, supermensch. Romans 9, God has mercy on whom he has mercy. Well, who does he have mercy on? Romans 10, those that confess with their mouth Jesus the Lord and believe in their heart that God has raised him from the dead. How are they gonna know unless someone tells them? Well, whoever calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. Romans 10, 13. And this is the gospel in Romans 12. So, man, if this thing is true, if things are true, that meaning that even if you've lived the most sexually perverse life that anybody has ever lived, Jesus offers you full assurance that you can have right standing with him because 2,000 years ago, he bore the full penalty of your sin on the cross and was slaughtered for your sin. But we don't worship a dead savior. We have a living hope because we have a living savior. And that's why he says, confess with your mouth that Jesus is the Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead because the power that raised Jesus from the dead is the same power that transforms and renews your heart. You can never have a renewed mind until you first cry out for a savior. And Jesus is not a reluctant savior. He is not a begrudging savior. He longs for people to be reconciled to God. In fact, he says in 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says he pleads with people on behalf of Christ, please be reconciled to God. May I just suggest, biblically, that maybe the reason you've never had victory in your fight against sin is because you've never received the victory that Jesus Christ has over it and placed your faith exclusively in him and laid aside every claim to earning your way to God and gone only, only through the blood of Jesus Christ can I have hope. It's not just the gospel that's needed for those who haven't yet received Christ. It's the very gospel that reminds those of us who are in Christ 
that sin is never as satisfying as intimacy with our Savior. And as we are reminded of the love of God that's been demonstrated to us, he becomes not just a figure, but our Father. And as he becomes our Father, we hate to grieve him. And so then the question, and I said this morning, but it's so important how your minds are renewed, you become increasingly sensitive to the things that he died for and increasingly sensitive to the things that grieve him, which means that maybe right now there's an explicit sexual sin in your life, but do you know what I'm becoming prayerfully increasingly sensitive to? Even the humor that would cause Jesus to be grieved. There are jokes that Jesus Christ died for. There are shows that are crude in a way where maybe you laugh about it, but Jesus Christ died for it. Because no unwholesome word, Ephesians 4, proceed out of your mouth, but only that which is good for edification. And then it's gonna say in the next verse, that do not grieve the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is grieved by even the things that we say that don't bring honor to him. And you're gonna renew your mind in scripture and go, man, I just want more nearness to Christ and a greater hatred of my sin. Paul beseeches people by the mercies of God only after 11 chapters of laying out the glory of the gospel. If you don't understand this format, you don't understand how scripture works. Colossians 1 and 2, lay out the gospel. Chapter 3, therefore. Ephesians 1 through 3, there are hundreds of realities about the gospel, one command, and it's remember. But after he's laid out the gospel in chapters four through six, there are 40 commands because the commands only come after the realities that he's laid out. How can you have a renewed heart? If you haven't, friend, you need to place your faith in Jesus Christ that he died for your sin, he rose for your justification, and he calls you child. First Peter 3.18, Christ Jesus died once and for all the just for the unjust to bring us to God. If you're a Christian, you can say that's the reminder I need to preach to myself every single day so that I would marvel at its glory and be disgusted by sin and love the righteous one who loves me. Let me pray. God, we love you. And we're thankful, Lord, that you renew our minds as we expose our minds and submit our minds to the truth of your spirit, truth of your word, because the spirit of God doesn't work in obscurity. The spirit of God works as he reveals truth to us. This is what Jesus says in John 16, that the Holy Spirit is gonna come and he's going to lead us into all the truth. John 14, 26, he's going to cause us to remember the things that you have said, meaning the spirit of God is working so that we might recall and meditate and churn on the things of God and so that our minds are transformed. God, I pray that that would be the reality. Assuredly, there are things I didn't cover that I should have, so would you drive my friends here to the word of God. We're thankful, Lord, that you are a savior and you bid us all to come to you, an eager savior and a loving father. We love you, Lord.